Amen. You can go ahead and be seated at this time. I want to say good morning to everybody. Thanks so much for coming to worship with us here this morning. Last week, we began a new message series on church membership. And last week, as we started that series, we answered the question, what is membership? Uh, today, we're going to begin answering the question, what do we as members of the Fresno Church believe? And we're going to take several weeks just to work at or look through our statement of faith. Like we said last week, these messages are going to be more topical in nature, and they're going to be also more academic in nature. And it's my prayer that this series will really uh, unite us as a church together. It's my prayer that it's going to give us a fresh start as we continue to move forward in the days ahead. And I'm also praying that it will help inform us of what it looks like to be a member of the Fresno Church. Now, before we dive in, I want to take a minute and kind of explain a little bit about why these next several messages are so important. I just got to say up front, I have probably twice as many notes as I normally do on a Sunday morning, and so I was already a little bit nervous because I'm like, oh man, this morning's going to be long, and then I felt like I, there's some more stuff I needed to say, and so in my notes, I've got a bunch of scribbles, so bear with me. <laughs> um, but I want to take a minute and just really explain why these next several messages are so important. Uh, we live in a day and age where truth has become subjective and relative. How many of you have heard the phrase, just find your truth? We went from leaving our feelings based on truth to our feelings now determine truth. And there's lots of reasons why the whole philosophy of you do you, I do me, you have your truth, I have my truth, just flat out doesn't work. Because oftentimes, if we allow feelings to determine truth, those feelings will come into conflict with each other, won't they? What happens when I feel like your car should be mine? <laughs> well, it's my truth. Who are you to say otherwise, right? So we know that type of thinking doesn't work, but oftentimes we don't really know why. So oftentimes what we realize is, okay, it can't be my feelings, so we'll look for some source of truth outside of ourselves and bigger than ourselves, and where a lot of society looks to is they'll look to their government. Okay, well, I know it can't just be me, so I'll look to the next biggest entity I can find, and I'll say that's not necessarily a bad place to look. God gave us the government as a gift of common grace in the best case scenario to execute his justice and righteousness, but because it's filled with broken people, how many of you realize that that often doesn't play out the way it should? You don't, you, you don't have to look farther than the history of our country, and I'm so thankful to be an American, but you don't have to look farther than the history of our country to see why the government isn't a good objective standard for truth. We need to have some type of objective standard outside of ourselves that helps us understand this is what truth is. This is how I should govern my life. And it's important to rightly understand what that is because oftentimes, even in the church, we get this wrong. And again, history is filled with examples of that. And so as we seek to understand, okay, what is truth? I mean, we're going to take several weeks, and we're just going to look at doctrine. What does the Bible say? This is what we believe. We want to know why, and we want to make sure that we're doing that rightly. We want the truth to be what leads us. Truth. And because people oftentimes are weak on truth, what will happen is now doctrine, even in the church, has become weak. And so here at the Fresno Church, we don't want to be led by our feelings. We want to be led by the truth of what God says. And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at the doctrine of God in the Bible. 
And y'all just buckle up with me because uh, we're going to work through it this morning. If you've got to leave for work earlier or something, that's fine. If you want to finish the sermon at Chili's on the live stream, I might judge you a little bit for that. Um, but we'll work through it. But today we're going to look at those two doctrines. And like I said, this series is going to be more topical. But as I was considering, what we've been doing the last several months is reading an entire chapter of Scripture to start the message off. And I wanted to continue doing that. And as I was considering, okay, what would be a good chapter to, for us to read together as a church family as we look at who is God and what is the Bible? Uh, I couldn't think of a better place to turn than John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to John chapter number 1. As we begin considering from the Bible who is God and what is the Bible, John chapter 1 is a great chapter to look at. I'm going to read the entire chapter. We're not going to work through it expositionally like we typically would. But as we begin reading it, what we're going to see is we're going to see the entire trinity at work in John chapter number 1. As Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, we see God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved in kickstarting Jesus' ministry. And in it, we also see that Jesus is called the Word. The Word became flesh and dwells among us. So I believe it's an appropriate one to read as we begin studying who God is, and why we believe the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, turn there. I'm going to read all of John chapter number one, then we will pray and jump into our study this morning. John chapter one, beginning of verse number one, the Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, speaking of John the Baptist, but he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and, expl and exclaimed, This was the one whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we all have received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, they asked, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered them. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All of this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. I feel like we could ask that about Fresno. <laughs> come and see, Philip answered. I love that response. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus responded to him, Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray, and then we will begin our study this morning. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that as we look into your word, that your spirit would open our eyes to understand your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that you give us hearts to worship and adore what we see based on the truth of your word. And I pray that as we study your word this morning, that your spirit would solidify in our hearts who God is and why we can trust you, why we can trust the Bible, why we believe the Bible is your word. Because, Lord, this really is so important to the foundation of our faith. And so I pray this morning that you would establish us in your word and that your spirit would open our eyes to see wondrous things in it. 
We ask this in your name. Amen. Right from the very beginning of Scripture, we see that God is not dependent on anyone or anything. The Bible doesn't start with all these reasons why we know God exists. It just starts with the fact that God exists. In fact, the entire Bible is a grand story, and it starts with the very existence of God. We got a notification on the computer in the back. That was the computer saying, amen. Genesis 1-1. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. And it tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right from the very verse of Scripture, we see God as the all-powerful creator of everything that exists. He has no beginning. He has no end. He precedes everything, and he exists outside our own concepts of time and space. And as we consider this, the crazy thing about that is, is that long before God ever created the world as we know it, long before God ever formed anything, long before God ever said, let there be light, he had you and me on his mind. He loves us, and he has a plan for our lives, and he has orchestrated everything leading up to this very moment. If you have a Bible, flip to Psalm 139 and keep your finger there. We're going to reference this psalm a few times throughout this morning's message. But verses 16, 17, and 18 say this. They say, you saw me, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. What an amazing reality. Like we sang about this morning, before there was even a breath in our lungs, before we were even formed in our mother's womb, God knew us, and he had a plan for our lives. This is what we refer to as the sovereignty of God. God is in control over everything. And I'll be honest, this is one of the most mind-boggling truths that we see in Scripture. It's hard for us to get our heads around a concept of a God who is all-powerful, but the truth is we have to remember he is infinite and we are finite. We will never fully be able to wrap our minds around all of who God is. And honestly, that's a good thing. That's one of the many reasons God is worthy of our worship. If we were to be honest, we would say, I don't even understand myself sometimes. Definitely don't want to worship myself. So one of the reasons we know God is worthy of our worship is because he is so far above what we can understand. Now, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to attempt to look at some of the ways he has revealed himself to us. Because why we can never fully understand all that God is, God in his sovereignty has chosen to reveal himself to us in the scriptures. And we want to understand the way that he has done that this morning. So let's begin by looking at the existence of God. God has revealed himself to us throughout scripture in what we often call the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what I'd like to do this morning is look at scriptures that help us understand each person of the Trinity... And then we're going to look at scriptures on why we believe all three members of the Trinity are one God. So let's start by looking at God the Father. The first person of the Trinity that we're going to look at is God the Father. We're going to attempt to get a deeper understanding of who he is by looking at his names as well as his attributes. Throughout scripture, God is given many names. God gives us many names of himself to help us understand different parts of his nature and his character and who he is. And here are just a few of some of the most common names in the Old Testament Hebrew language. The first one is Adonai. Adonai means Lord or Master. It means God is the Master and Majestic Lord. It means He is our total authority. We see this name used in Psalm 8, Isaiah 40, Ezekiel 16, and Habakkuk 3. Adonai, Lord, Master. We see the name used throughout the Old Testament called Elohim. 
This is God, creator or judge. It means God is the all-powerful creator of the universe. Sometimes people will say, only God can judge me, and they say it kind of flippantly, but that should put the fear of God in you. This is Elohim. This means God knows all. God has created all, and he's everywhere at all times. We see this name used in Genesis 1, those verses we just read a moment ago. Deuteronomy 10, Psalm 68, Mark 13. We see the name throughout the Old Testament, El Shaddai. This is the all-sufficient one, Lord God Almighty. It means God completely nourishes, satisfies, and supplies his people by meeting their needs. When the name El, or when the name Shaddai is connected with the word for God, El, it denotes a God who freely gives nourishment and blessing. He is our sustainer. He's the all-sufficient source of life. He is all-powerful, and this name shows us that there's no problem too big for our God. We see this name used in Genesis 17, Genesis 8, 35, 43. We see it in Psalm 90. The last name for God I want to look at this morning, and there's many, is Yahweh. This is Lord Jehovah. This means God never changes. His promises never fail. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. God uses Yahweh for himself when he makes a promise to his people. The name of God, which by Jewish tradition was too holy to speak, is actually spelled without consonants. It's uh, Y-H-W-H, spelled without vowels, excuse me, spelled with consonants, without vowels. We see this name used in Exodus 3, in Psalm 116, Isaiah 41, and Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord, I change not. The attributes of God... Or these names of God reveal to us who he is. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And it teaches us about his character and his nature. We also see throughout scripture attributes of God. Now the attributes of God are the characteristics that make him who he is. Nobody else can claim the attributes of God. Nobody else can claim them or have claimed to have attained them. They are a part of God's infinite nature and they are, mo- they are what make God God. The attributes of God are the essential, permanent, and distinguishing characteristics that belong only to him. And the first one we want to look at is that God is perfect. Since we as human beings are not perfect, we're constantly prone to change. Sometimes this is for better, sometimes this is for worse. But we're always prone to change. But for a perfect God, change could only mean corruption. God cannot grow. God cannot change into anything better because he already is perfect. He is already better. Malachi 3.6, because I, the Lord, have not changed. We see this in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from, excuse me, the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Shadows change depending on the source of light, but James tells us our God never changes. And because of that, we can trust him. So we see God is perfect. We also see throughout Scripture, God is all-present, or omnipresent. We often will say that God is everywhere, but the concept goes so much deeper than that. It means God literally transcends space and time. He is literally in every place at once and exists at all times at once. It's mind-boggling, right? He created the concept of time for our benefit, but he himself exists outside the realm of time. In 1 Kings 8.27, the Bible says, But will God indeed live on the earth? Even heaven, the highest of heavens, cannot contain you, much less this temple that I've built. Again, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 17. It's an amazing passage of scripture. The psalmist says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? 
He says, if I go up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I fly on the wings of dawn and settle upon the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day, and the darkness and light are alike to you, the psalmist says. He goes on and says, For it was you who created me in my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I, am, I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast are some things. So as we can see the psalmist praising God, we can see he exists everywhere and at all times. God knows exactly how everything is going to turn out because he is present at all points in time. And as we're going to see, God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing or omniscient. God knows everything. I mean, let that sink in for a moment. I mean, sometimes we get so freaked out because what's going to happen? I don't know how things are going to turn out, but we can just take a moment and rest and pause and breathe because we know our Heavenly Father knows all. Psalm 147 gives us a pretty powerful example to help us understand the scope of how great this attribute of God's is. Psalm 147, verse 4 and 5, the Bible says, He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Our Lord is great and vast in power. His understanding is infinite. There's no ends to what he knows. And the writer of the psalm is saying he literally has a name for every star. So not only does he know exactly how many stars there are, he has a name for all of them. None of us can even think of that many words, much less a name. Scientists estimate that there are over 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone. So just our little corner of the universe called the Milky Way galaxy, there's over 400 billion stars. Astronomers have estimated that there are about 170 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So 170 billion other galaxies like the Milky Way one that we spin around in and outer space. So based on this, astronomers have estimated that there are well over one septillion stars in the universe. That's a one with 24 zeros behind it. And not only did God create them, but he's got a name for each and every one. And not only does God have a name for each and every star, but he knows you. He knows every little detail about us, right down to the number of hairs on your head. He knows the good and the bad of our lives, and yet the Bible tells us he still loves us unconditionally. Matthew 10, 29 and 30. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Again, Psalm 139, first four verses of the psalm. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You're aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it. Our God is all-knowing. How amazing. How amazing. We also see that our God is all-powerful. 
to have created everything in the universe out of nothing with just a word, one would have to be all-powerful, and God is. Knowing that God is all-powerful and in control shows us that we can rest in him regardless of how difficult our circumstances may be. Jeremiah 32, 17. Oh, Lord God, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. God is all-powerful. We also see throughout Scripture that God is loving. It's not just that God knows all and is all-powerful, but he lovingly directs the lives of his children. God is with us to comfort us even when life is uncomfortable. It's not that God is just all-powerful, but he uses that power for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory, and so we can trust in his sovereignty. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. The Bible tells us, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. In these verses, the Apostle John is expressing that love is the very essence of who God is. It belongs to God's nature. It's woven into who he is. It's like saying the sun gives light because it's light. God loves because God is love. And scripture tells us the greatest manifestation of his love was the fact that he sent his son Jesus to be sacrificed for our sins. 1 John 4, the next few verses from the ones we just read, says God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I love how the Apostles' Creed sums it up. It says, God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth. I love Paul's expression of worship at the end of Romans chapter number 11, verses 33 through 36. He says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that which, that which, that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What an amazing doxology of worship as we consider God the Father. But as, let's consider the second part of the Trinity, and that's the Son of God, which we see throughout Scripture is Jesus. So we looked at God the Father. Now let's look at God the Son. Jesus is just as much God as God the Father. This belief is foundational to the Christian faith. Uh, one writer, um, his name's Wayne Grudem, wrote a great book on systematic theology. He says, we could summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. We looked at that when we studied Philippians chapter number two. By the way, if you're looking for a good book on systematic theology, Wayne, Wayne Grudem's book is one of many good ones. I can uh, send you a link later if you want. But in the New Testament, we see Jesus possessing all the same attributes as God. These things that are unique to God, that make God God, that we say only God could have those, we see they all belong to Jesus as well. In Matthew 28, 20, we see Jesus is all present. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. In John 16, 30, we see that Jesus is all-knowing. The Bible says in John 16, 30, now we know, this is one of the disciples talking to Jesus, now we know that you know everything. And you don't need anyone to question you. 
By this we believe you came from God. So the disciples are saying, we recognize you're the Messiah because you know everything. In John 21, 17, Jesus is talking to Peter after Jesus has resurrected. He's, he, he, Jesus, asked him a third time, Simon, son of, Jonah, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So we see Jesus is all-knowing. We also see that Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus demonstrated that he was all-powerful through the many miracles that he performed during his earthly ministry. Jesus calmed the storm at sea in Matthew chapter number 8. He multiplied loaves and fish and to feed thousands in Matthew 14. He turned water into wine in John chapter number 2. The Bible says in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in the book, but these that are written... Or, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. The miracles that we see Jesus performing prove that he was truly God. Right in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority or power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is all powerful. We also see that he's eternal. Just like God has existed for of all time, before time began, so did Jesus. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now he used I am on purpose, because I was saying, <laughs> that was how God the Father revealed himself. And he was saying, look, before even Abraham existed, who was born thousands of years before Jesus, he's, Jesus was saying, I am. He's eternal. John 1, 1, the chapter we just read a moment ago. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He said in John 10, 30, I and my Father are one. So we see that Jesus is eternal. In John 14, 9, 10, and 11, Jesus said to them, Have I been among you all this time, and you don't know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does this work. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. There are many other places, pieces of evidence that validate who Jesus is claiming to be. Towards the end of John's gospel, Thomas meets the risen Jesus, and he exclaims in John 20, 28, Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Now, the Greek word for God in John 20, 28 was Theos. That's typically used in the New Testament for God the Father. But here Thomas uses that word to declare the deity of Jesus. Jesus, you are God. Another work that we see Jesus was involved in that God the Father did was creation. John 1, 3, all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So we see God the Father created the world, and we also see God the Son was involved in creation as well. There's also plenty of historical evidence that validates what we see in the New Testament. Roman historian Tacitus, who was born around 52 AD and wrote a history of the reign of Nero, records Christ's death and the quick rise of Christianity. Another period historian by the name of Josephus even acknowledged Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us 
that 500 people were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus and tells us the resurrection is what? That's the foundation of our faith. So there's plenty of historical evidence that validates who Jesus claimed to be. So we've briefly seen that Jesus not only possesses the same attributes of God, but that he himself claimed to be God, and his followers believed that he was God and were even willing to give their lives for this truth. The Bible also tells us that Jesus lived a perfect life in Hebrews 4. And he was then crucified on a cross to save us for our sins. The reason this is so important, other than the fact that the Bible clearly spells it out, is that only someone who is infinite, only God, could bear the full penalty of all the sin of those who would believe in him. No finite being could do that. The Bible tells us in Jonah 2.19 that salvation belongs to the Lord, God. Salvation belongs to him. The testimony of scripture shows us that humankind is incapable of saving itself, but that we need God to save us. That's the story of the Bible. We can't. We need God. And we see in 1 Timothy that this is, in fact, Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. If Jesus was not God, we would have no salvation and ultimately no Christianity. And we're all wasting our time here. C.S. Lewis famously said Jesus was either a liar, he lied about what he claimed to be. That doesn't explain the miracles. He was a lunatic, also doesn't explain the miracles. Or he was who he claimed to be, and he was in fact Lord. He doesn't give us any other room. 1 John 2, verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has a Father as well. Jesus is God. But we also see in Scripture a third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as both Jesus and the Father. And he is just as vital to living the Christian life as the Father and Jesus are. In fact, the Holy Spirit is so important that Jesus said it was necessary that he leave earth so that we could experience the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I, Jesus speaking, am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. This verse is saying that the Holy Spirit inside of us is better than Jesus beside us. Now, that sounds crazy to me, but that's Jesus, not me. <laughs> sounds like the Holy Spirit is vital. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit is God, because just like Jesus throughout this scripture, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is ascribed the same divine attributes as God the Father and God the Son. We see that the Holy Spirit is eternal. When Jesus was describing the Holy Spirit to his disciples prior to leaving earth, he says, the counselor will be with you forever. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? So just like God the Father is eternal, has existed outside of time, just like God the Son is eternal, has existed outside of time, Holy Spirit is right there too, because he is God. We also see that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Earlier we looked at Psalm 139 to see the omnipresence of God the Father. 
But in Psalm 139, the Holy Spirit is used interchangeably with God. In Psalm 139.1, it's, Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then in verse 7, it's, where can I go to escape your spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is God, and he is all-present. We also see that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He knows all. 1 Corinthians, Paul shows us that the Holy Spirit is all-knowing, just like the Father and the Son. Paul says he knows the very thoughts of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verse, or, yeah, verse 2, chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So Paul's over here saying, who can know the mind of God? Who can fathom his depths? And then Paul says, I'll tell you who the Holy Spirit, because he's God. He goes on to say, for who knows a person's thought except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We see this again in John 14, 26. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to teach you all things. The Holy Spirit knows all. We also see that the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. Luke 1, 35. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So here, as we see the virgin birth of our Savior, we see the all-powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, we also see the Holy Spirit doing divine work. He does things that only God can do. In Job 33, 4, we see Elihu speaking with Job. Now, Elihu, he's an interesting character in the book of Job. He's Job's fourth friend. How many of you knew Job had a fourth friend? A few of us, okay. He often gets skipped over. He's the only friend God didn't rebuke at the end of the book. And the only one God didn't confront. And he said in Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me. So we see the Holy Spirit making a man, creating. We see the Holy Spirit giving life. That's divine work. The Holy Spirit breathed life into us. The Spirit is also called in this verse the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. In Genesis 1-2, we see the Holy Spirit involved in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So we see the Holy Spirit involved in creation. We see the Holy Spirit giving us eternal life. He is the one who gives us eternal life when a person believes in Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. We see the Holy Spirit is the one who gave divine prophecies and inspired the writers of Scripture. 2 Peter 1.21, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it was the Spirit of God that gave us the Word of God. If you compare the Old Testament with the New Testament, we also see the Holy Spirit is God. This, this is neat. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6. We'll look at verses 8 and 9 from Isaiah 6, and then we're going to flip to Acts to make this comparison. Isaiah 6, verses 8 and 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, I said, Here am I, send me. And God replies, Go. Say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Now, the Hebrew word used for Lord here is Adonai. 
This title was spoken in place of Yahweh in a Jewish display of reverence. So we know he's talking about God the Father. We know it's God the Father speaking here in Isaiah 6. But then if you flip over to Acts 28, the Bible says, disagreeing among themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening, but never understanding. You will always be looking, but never perceiving. So the statement attributed to God the Father in the Old Testament is attributed to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, showing us that the Holy Spirit is indeed God. And of course, we have Acts 5, verses 3 and 4, one of the most well-known passages where the Holy Spirit and God are used interchangeably. This is when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter confronts the sin of Ananias. In Acts 5, 3, Peter asks, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then at the end of verse 5, he says, you've not lied to people, but to God. When a person places, now when a person places their faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit then moves in. He takes residence inside that person, and he lives inside of them. The Holy Spirit becomes our constant companion. And because the Holy Spirit lives within us, he is with us no matter what we face throughout the rest of our lives. He has promised to never go away or forsake us or leave us stranded. John 14, 17, he is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. What a comfort to know that you have the Holy Spirit of God with you at all times. And he enables us to live like Jesus. Since the Holy Spirit and Jesus are both God and since they are one, the Holy Spirit's always going to point us towards Jesus. The Holy Spirit enables us to follow Jesus and to live like Jesus. When we yield control of our thoughts, our motives, our actions, when we yield control of our lives to him, our lives begin to look like what it would look like if Jesus was living in our place. Galatians 5, 23, or 22 through 25 outlines for us, this is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. Since the Holy Spirit lives inside every believer, being filled with the Spirit is a continual choice to yield to His control. It starts with a continual awareness that the Holy Spirit is always with me. And as we are aware of His continual presence, and as we yield control to Him, our lives begin to change. This is what Paul meant in Ephesians 5.18 when he tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And he told us in Galatians 5 that when we walk by the Spirit, we won't carry out the desire of the flesh. So that's a very brief look. I know some of you are like, that wasn't so brief, Pastor Nick. <laughs> that's a very brief look at each of the three people, or each of the three persons of the Trinity. Now, while the phrase Trinity is never used in Scripture, the idea represented by the word is taught in many places throughout the Bible. The idea is that God eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. And we see this in Genesis 1.26. The Bible says, Then God, singular, said, Let us, plural, make man in our image according to our likeness. So we see God in the singular tense talking about himself in the plural tense. And as we've already seen, all three members of the Trinity were involved in creation. So right in some of the very first verses of Scripture, we see the Trinity at play. In Genesis 3.22, we see the same thing. The Lord God said... Since man has become like one of us. Again, we see the singular and the plural. 
We also saw it in Isaiah 6. I don't know if you caught it when we read verse 8 a moment ago. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? Again, there's the Trinity, the three in one. Several New Testament passages put all three members of the Trinity on equal standing with each other. To do this, they would have to all be one. The Bible says in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 13, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Bible also tells us in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, while the doctrine of the Trinity is one that requires faith, it is a mystery we'll never be able to fully understand. It's been fun trying to explain this to my seven-year-old. <laughs> we can sum up the biblical teaching on the Trinity with three statements. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, ultimately, while we should do our best to understand God as much as we can because he has revealed himself to us, the truth is we'll never fully be able to comprehend all that he is because he is infinite and we are finite. He is far beyond what we are capable of understanding, especially when we try to comprehend the Trinity. I mean, you think about it long enough, your head's going to spin. To some degree, God is a divine mystery, and it takes authentic faith to fully experience him. And just like we saw in Deuteronomy 6.5, the proper response from us is total surrender, total love. To love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. To just wholeheartedly give himself to us. He is worthy of our worship, our allegiance, and our love. So here is the first section of our statement of faith. We're going to put it up on the screens. Uh, if you want to save these verses because you can't write them all down, all my sermon notes will be available online where you can listen to the sermon later this afternoon. But here's the first section of our statement of faith. We believe that there is one God who has eternally existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He is the creator and sustainer of all things and is perfect in holiness, love, and righteousness. He is in control over all and is worthy of our worship, allegiance, and love. And the primary way God has revealed himself to us is going to lead us into the second part of our statement of faith. And that is the Bible. How has God chosen to reveal himself to us? What's the primary way God has said, here I am? Like we saw in John 1, the word. The technical term for this is revelation. God communicating truth to mankind that was previously unknown or unknowable. The Bible, God's word, is how God speaks to us. We saw it was the Holy Spirit that inspired the words. The Bible says in Ephesians that the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. This is how God speaks to us. Sometimes people say, man, I wish God would speak to me. I'm like, go read your Bible. And they're like, I wish God would speak to me out loud. I'm like, read your Bible out loud. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you. The Bible is how God communicates to us. But just like any relationship, communication is key, isn't it? If you want to get to know God, allow God to speak to you through his word. Now, the Bible was written by numerous authors over thousands of years. 
The Bible is broken up into sections called the Old Testament and the New Testament. In it, we learn biblical history, detailed prophecy that Christ fulfilled, the wisdom of God. We learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, even though the Bible is made up of 66 books, it has one message. These books are not arranged in chronological order. Some of them are, but the whole, as a whole, they're broken up into categories. History, poetry, prophets, gospels, epistles, and revelation. The book of Revelation is a fun one because it's a bunch of categories all in one. <laughs> the Bible is so much more than a history lesson or an instruction manual. The Bible is what the Holy Spirit of God uses to make us like Jesus. It's what he tells us to fill and renew our minds with. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible that we hold in our lap. And it's in the Bible we see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is God's grand story of redemption. From beginning to end, God proclaims our need for a Savior, and that Savior is His Son, Jesus. But how did we get the Bible? And why can we trust it? Let's look at several reasons why we can have confidence that the Bible truly is the Word of God. Let's answer that first question. Where did we get the Bible? That's a question people have debated for centuries. Did God send it down on a fluffy cloud in leather binding? No. Did a bunch of religious people get together and just hash it all out and write it all out? No. Did God put the human writers in some kind of trance as they mindlessly wrote things down not knowing what they wrote? No. <laughs> Each of the 66 books of the Bible has a different human writer. Like we said, it was written over a period of 2,000 years across much of the known world. These men weren't given a crystal ball. They weren't put into a trance. The ultimate source was God. But he uses their personalities and writing styles to transcribe the scripture. I mean, compare the writings of Paul with the writings of Peter. <laughs> or John, for that matter, in 1 John. You can see differences in writing styles, but there's one congruent message. The technical term Christians often use to describe this is inspiration. The word means God breathed. So literally, the Bible came out of the mouth of God. And because of this, because the Bible came to us from God... It is completely authoritative and without error. 2 Peter 1.21 tells us, No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men from God, instead men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is inspired by God. Now when he was saying all scripture there, he would have been talking about the Old Testament too. Which is why, unlike some evangelicals, we're not going to unhitch from the Old Testament because it's inspired by God. So we see that the human writers were not giving their own thoughts or their own ideas. They were conveying what God had communicated to them and through them. Yes, their personalities and their writing styles were a part of it. But these are the very words of God. The Bible is from God, written through humans over the course of many centuries. Now, given the nature of how we receive the Bible, the next question we want to answer is what made it in? Since the Bible is a collection of sacred texts that were written over a long period of time, it's important for us to understand the criteria to decide what text qualified as God's word and what didn't. The decision-making process is known as canonization. The sacred texts that made it through the canonization process are known as the canon of scripture that we have today. 
There's a reason things are in here, and there's a reason things aren't in here. There's a reason some things are not considered the canon of Scripture. Now, here are some of the qualifications used to determine what was actually God's word. Let's look at some of the Old Testament criteria. When compiling the Old Testament, there were several questions that scholars would ask about sacred texts to help determine if it was God's word. Those questions included, was the book written, edited, or endorsed by a prophet? One of those questions was, is this book historically accurate? Does this book claim divine authorship? Is there a relation between the human author and God? You know, you don't want somebody who's an unbeliever saying, oh yeah, this is scripture. You'd be like, dude, you don't even know the Lord. <laughs> so is there a relationship between the human author and God? Scholars used both history and scripture themselves to answer these questions and affirm the authenticity of biblical text. So let's look at some of the historical support that answered those questions or met those criteria. The Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, contained information from the entire Old Testament canon, except Esther, historically verifying the books of the Old Testament. Jewish tradition tells us that Ezra, he wrote two books of the Old Testament, you'll be familiar with him, he wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. Jewish tradition tells us that Ezra gathered the Old Testament canon. And Jewish scholars have ratified the Old Testament canon that he compiled. They officially ratified it at the Council of Jamnia in 90 AD. So very early on in the history of the church, we have the Old Testament canon being ratified. The, I'm going to say this wrong, the Brionius list was one of the earliest references to the canon of scripture. And it was found in the monastery of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 1873. So these are some historical evidences that verify the Old Testament is indeed the word of God. This list that I just mentioned uh, was dated to the first or early second century and includes the entire Old Testament, giving more historical support for the Old Testament canon that we use today. Another historical evidence, uh, the ancient secular Jewish historian Josephus, I mentioned him earlier, he included all but the minor prophets. Now, it's important to note that while he didn't include them, he didn't exclude them either. Ancient church leaders have also affirmed the Old Testament canon that we have today. So lots of historical evidence that would support this is, this canon of the Old Testament is why we believe this is actually God's word. Now let's look at some scriptural support. David said in 2 Samuel 23, 2, that God would often speak through him using David's tongue to speak God's words. Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah 59, 21. Jesus himself would often quote the Old Testament indicating divine authorship. You say, well, how did we know these guys weren't just making a false claim? Because in the Old Testament, if you claim to have heard from God and were found out to be false, that was the death penalty. So this wasn't something people just willy-nilly went around and claimed. And the fact that Jesus himself would often quote the Old Testament indicates its divine authorship. In fact, Jesus even said in Mark 12, 36, that it was the Holy Spirit who would speak through David. So if God himself is saying God himself spoke through David, I think we could trust it. Amen? Jesus also said that the words of Moses were the words of God in Luke 24, 44. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, all scriptures by given, is given by God. He was referring to the Old Testament when he said that. Another interesting fact is that about 33% of the New Testament quotes or refers to the Old Testament. That's over 7,967 verses. Some translations will even put quotes in the Old Testament in bold. It's amazing when you start flipping through it just to see how many times in the New Testament they were quoting the Old Testament, verifying this is indeed the Word of God. So that is the criteria for how 
scholars throughout the ages that said, okay, this is the word of God for the Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament criteria. It also had similar, the criteria included, the text had to be written by an apostle or someone very close to an apostle. An apostle was somebody who saw the risen Jesus. So that gave them weight. That gave what they said clout. We see this happening in Mark, Luke, Acts, and Hebrews. The writings of the New Testament had to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. There are some ancient writings that people have tried to slip into the canon that didn't make the process because what they were saying was just so out in left field. Ancient church leaders would often wait to see if a text was used by God. Because in those early days, they're like, man, we want to make sure this is from the Word of God. So they would wait to see, does God actually use this or does this just fizzle out? Laxly, the text had to be received by the church of Scripture. This was because the early church would often be martyred for just having Scripture in their possession. So it's apparent that they did not take lightly whether or not something was in fact God's Word. Now some historical support for the New Testament canon that we have today. The Council of Laodicea in AD 364 and the Council of Carthage in AD 397 both settled the New Testament canonization process. These were two councils that early church formed that said, okay, this is the Word of God. This is what makes up the New Testament. The Council of Laodicea was during a time when Roman persecution was heating up against Christians. And so the early church leaders, they wanted to know, is this God's word or not? Because our lives very well may depend on that answer. The Council of Carthage further ratified the New Testament canon of Scripture. Now there's also scriptural support for the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3, Peter recognizes the writings of Paul as Scripture. In 2 Peter 3, 2, it also supports the prophets and the apostles. As we said earlier, the New Testament quotes all but seven books of the Old Testament. So there's a lot of historical and scriptural support for why we believe what is God's word says is God's word. But the ultimate answer to these questions was the canonization process was finished when God finished it. What God said is what was in the Bible, and what God didn't say isn't in the Bible. Our belief in God's word is a faith decision, but I bring all this up because I want us to understand this is not a blind faith or believing the Bible to be the Word of God is not an unscholarly belief. You're not some religious wacko or nut who believes, well, I believe this is actually the Word of God. There is plenty of historical evidence to support that belief. Now, the next question I want to look at is, why can we trust the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? Many people throughout Scripture have tried to undermine God's Word. It's what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. This is no new trick. One of Satan's goals is to discredit God's Word. So it's important for us to have answers that will strengthen our faith in the Bible when the Bible's questioned. What I'm going to do is give us several quick pieces of evidence that support the integrity of Scripture. And I'm going to move through these quickly uh, because we're going long here. But I want us to understand there's lots of evidence that supports the Scripture. Evidence number one, it's archaeologically verified. Middle Eastern archaeology archaeological investigations have verified the Bible to be true. In fact, I was just reading they're getting ready to excavate well, where the city of Colossae used to be. Pretty amazing stuff. But archaeology has consistently verified what the Bible has said is all true and has been unerringly accurate in its historical descriptions. Nelson Gluck, who was a renowned Jewish archaeologist, stated no archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. That's pretty powerful stuff. The walls of Jericho, for example. For years, skeptics thought the story of the falling walls of Jericho was a myth. However, in the 1930s, Dr. John Garsting made a remarkable discovery. 
He said, as to the main fact, there remains no doubt. The walls fell outwards so completely that the attackers would be able to clam it up and over the ruins of the city. Archaeologists find this remarkable because city walls tend to fall inwards, not outwards. Next, we see that the Bible has been scientifically correct. Now, the Bible is not a book about science, but what it does say about science is true. The Bible says in Leviticus 17.11, the life of a creature is in its blood. But think about for how many centuries, if you had a headache, they're like, oh, let me drill a hole in your head and let some of the bad blood out. That's why our first president, George Washington, died. But as we have advanced in science, we realize, oh, a person needs their blood. <laughs> that's kind of important. Well, that's just one example of how modern science has learned what the Bible taught way back in Leviticus. We also see that the scripture includes fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy. If you just look at all the prophecy Jesus Christ fulfilled, I mean, you have a better chance of finding a needle in a haystack. One example would be how 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah named the tiny town of Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah in Micah 5.2. The fulfillment of this prophecy is one of the most widely known and celebrated facts in history. So we see plenty of history fulfilled in Scripture. We also can see how the Scripture is indestructible. People have tried to attack it. People have tried to eliminate it for century after century, and yet here we still have it. One ironic example of this, 18th century atheist French philosopher Voltaire predicted that within 100 years, the Bible and Christianity would be swept out of existence. Yet 50 years after his death in 1778, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home as a place to make Bibles. And lastly, it's been experientially verified. Everything that the Bible says will take place in the life of a believer in Jesus has been experienced by millions of people throughout history. And if the experiences of so many people align with what the scriptures have declared to take place in the life of a believer, well, I would say that's just one more piece of evidence that we can believe and we can trust. Thus saith the Lord. And again, though all this evidence is strong proof of the authenticity of the Bible, it's important to understand that evidence alone is not our sole reason for believing. It's faith. Science isn't going to answer every question that you have. Faith is important to our beliefs. It is a step of faith, but it's not some blind, crazy step. You can trust that your faith in God's word is rock solid. Now, lastly, let's look at the point of the Bible. We're almost done. What is the point of the Bible? The Bible was given to us so that we can know God. The Bible is God's self-revelation. Scripture tells us that the way we come to know God is through the word, Jesus. Jesus himself said this in Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted for them things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Again, that's Old Testament. So here we see Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, using all of the scriptures to show them he was the Messiah. We also see in Luke 24, verse 44 and 45. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that was a Jewish way of saying the entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That phrase, all the scriptures. So based on what we see here, we begin to understand the Bible is just one big story about how God is on a mission to rescue humanity through his son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of his name. Now, since the primary objective of the Bible is to reveal God to us in deeper ways, we should approach the scriptures with a heart to get to know God better. God is the hero of the Bible. I cringe whenever I hear somebody say, oh, you can be David and go out and defeat your Goliath. You just need to pick up the stone of perseverance and the stone of blah, blah, blah. You're not the hero of the Bible. Sorry. It's not about you. It's for you, but it's not about you. God is the hero of the Bible. We don't read the Bible just to get through it. We read the Bible to get to Jesus. We read the Bible so that we can know God. But I don't know about you, but have you ever opened up the Bible, read it, and walked away and felt like nothing happened? <laughs> like, this is supposed to be how I interact with God. Perhaps you had the thought, man, there has to be more to Bible reading than this. The Bible is a window through which we see the glory of Jesus. But if you were to be honest, you would say, I don't know that that was my experience this morning. Maybe you think it'd be awesome if Jesus would just show up and talk to you instead, right? Man, if Jesus would just show up in my house and have coffee with me every morning, then I would really, my time in the Word would be worship. Then it would be great. Then the glory of God would be real to me. But I want to propose to you this morning that spending time in the Bible will actually do the same thing for your heart, for your soul, and for your spiritual life as sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, granted, not every morning is going to feel like this banner, woohoo! But as you consistently saturate your mind in God's word, it is the same experience as sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, how does this happen? The Apostle John said that the Holy Spirit would come, enable him and the other eyewitnesses of Scripture to put what they saw into words. We see this in John 14, 26 and John 16, 13. So that people could see the glory of Christ by reading and so believe and have eternal life. We can see and be changed by the glory of Christ without seeing the physical body of Jesus. John 20, verses 29 through 31. Jesus said, uh, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written. Don't underestimate that word written there. So that you may believe. How do we experience what's written? You read it. These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is to reveal to us the glory of Jesus. The Word of God is the tool. It's the sword of the Spirit that he uses so that we can know what it was like to sit at the feet of the Word. The glory of Christ is seen by spending time in the Word of God. So the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that engaging with the Scriptures can be just as powerful, just as life-changing, as literally listening to the physically resurrected Jesus. The Word of God is how we know and experience Him. Turn in your Bible to 1 John 1. I want to read verses 1 through 4. I share these verses fairly regularly because they just blow my mind every time I read them. Again, the Apostle John says, What was from the beginning... The word, we saw that in John chapter 1. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched 
with our hands. Remember Thomas put his hand, or Jesus told him, put your hand here, and he didn't even need to. What we have seen, what we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed. And we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Sounds a lot like John 1, 1, doesn't it? So that what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. Paul said in the book of Ephesians that we understand the mystery of Christ by reading the Scriptures. John intends that the faith and life he received by seeing Jesus, by hearing Jesus, by touching Jesus, he intends that that life he received, his readers would also be able to receive by reading what he saw. The glory of Christ shining through inspired writing. This is foundational truth that we need to believe when we open up our Bibles, and it should blow our minds. This same life-changing power that people encountered when they met Jesus, like we're holding it in our laps. We've got it on our phones. Like, in the English-speaking world, we're spoiled. We have so many different translations. I mean, you want a nice leather cover? You can have it. You want a camel cover? You can, I mean, we're, we're spoiled by how many copies of the Word of God we have and how accessible it is. But don't let how available it is cause you to take it for granted. It is the Word of God. That's an amazing thing. The same life-changing power that people encountered when they met Jesus was sitting in our laps this morning. Now, I understand, not every day feels mind-blowing. But if these passages are true, and I believe they are, put a gun to my head, I'll die for it. These are true. The Word of God should be central and foundational to our lives. This is why we sing the Word, we pray the Word, we read the Word, we study the Word. When we have to make decisions, we consult the wisdom of God that we see in the world, in the Word. We get around together, we talk about what God is teaching us in the Word. The Word of God is central to our life. 1 Thessalonians says it's what creates faith. Hebrews 4.12 tells us it does the work of God. 2 Timothy says it convicts our heart. 1 Peter tells us it's what saves us. God's Word is His supernatural power for accomplishing His supernatural work. But the reason we don't often experience it that way is because we don't approach our Bibles that way. We also discount the ordinary means of reading. God intends for us to experience the glory of Christ by reading the Word of God, by studying the Word of God, filling your life with it, renewing your mind in it. Through the most ordinary activity, we can experience the most wonderful reality. Writer David Math Mathis said, one of the biggest scams Satan has running is the lie that reading the Bible is a chore. Oh, I gotta read my Bible today. I don't wanna blow my streak on you, Virgin. It's not a chore, it's life. The Apostle John is telling us that those who read his writings get the same experience. What a mind-blowing reality. So here's our statement of faith regarding the Bible. We believe that the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament, was written by men as they were divinely inspired by God and is therefore without error. It is God's primary way of revealing himself, his wisdom, and the way of salvation. Because the Bible is God's word, it is the final authority for what we believe and how we are to live 
our lives. End of speech. Congratulations, you made it. I know that was a lot of content. <laughs> like I said earlier, um, online, I'm going to put the uh, an entire transcript of what I got up here. It's going to be available. So if you want to go back and relook at some of these references or save them, they're all available to do that. But thank you for hanging in there with me. Thank you for letting me preach for over an hour now. I don't even want to know how long. But thank you for listening so well. I appreciate it.